Welcome back to Out of the Question. It was a treat for a sports nuffy like me to have as my guest this week the football and cricket commentator, Mark Howard. Final ball to Smith over to Leach. It's taken! Steve Smith breaks through! Australia one wicket away! England have got a couple of overs to survive. I think Mark, or Howie as he's commonly referred to, is a brilliant AFL commentator, but I'm not really an expert in that field. But I can safely say that when it comes to cricket, he's one of the strongest ball-by-ball commentators I've heard. He's always prepared, he's got insight, and he brings out the best in the former stars offering special comments. During our chat, I learned that he started his career in television as a crew guy on the Formula One broadcast. He then took a job as a reporter on 10 Sports before becoming a boundary rider and commentator on 10 and Triple M's AFL coverage. But perhaps his biggest break was being the ball-by-ball commentator for the Big Bash on 10 and then moving to Fox Sports, where he now commentates and hosts the network's cricket coverage. He could also be seen hosting Fox Footy's new late-night show, Best on Ground. As usual, I started off by asking Howie how his fellow workers would describe him. I would hope they would say that uh, I'm relaxed and casual and fun and happy. Um, that's the way I would like to look at myself. But I also hope that they would realise that I'm pretty determined to make what we're working on, what whether, whatever it is, to be the best it can possibly be. I think probably had since I had kids, which was 12 years ago, I sort of pulled my finger out a bit and thought, right, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it properly. If I'm going to be away at cricket or wherever um, and I'm going to miss that time with my family, we might as well be doing it proper job of it so I hope that's the way they would think of me and I, I also hope that they would think and I was taught early days during the cricket this that I'm there to hopefully make them look as good as possible my role is to make them the stars of the show and hopefully uh, they've taught me a lot especially on this latest footy show that you're talking about on the intro um, best on ground they've taught me a lot about success and how driven they are but hopefully I've been able to help them a little bit along the way and we operate as a team so hopefully they think I'm a team player as well but it's a hard I don't know you'd have to ask them they, they might think I'm bloody hopeless I don't know what draws me to how he's works not just his preparation in the commentary box but his agility when he interviews someone he actually listens to the interviewee's answer which is rarer than it should be and he asks the questions that the fan at home would want asked I, I I learned ad to succeed. I learned early days on the Big Bash cricket. I'd never commentated cricket before. And all of a sudden there was Gilchrist and Ponting and Fleming and War. Like, I know you love your cricket. So mm. it'd be like you sitting with these blokes like, oh, wow. And the boss yeah. explained to me that if you give them every possible opportunity to shine, if you bowl a half volleys outside of stump that they can belt through the covers, then the team will play well and eventually it will reflect on you as well. So I've tried to take that into everything I've done, that to know your role, play your role, set it up for the real stars, the, the, the people that, uh, that the audience are tuned in to watch. And if they perform well, then you'll normally end up in a pretty good space as well. There was a great moment I, I, I remember where one day in the commentary box, Warney was giving a shit about not, not going out with them uh, at, at night. And yeah. you said... I have to go back to my hotel room and prepare. I haven't taken 700 test wickets. And, and it's funny. And, and he, he, um, uh, he bless him would 
he'd be like, hey, you've done enough of this. People want to know your opinion. I'm like, no, mate, they don't want to know my opinion. And, and I've said this to, to people before. Mark War once a year will say to me, come on, you, you've done, you know, 160 of these big bash games with me over 10 years. What do you think? I said, well, no one cares what I think. And he said, no, come on, give your opinion. Then I would say, oh, well, if I was uh, bowling to McDermott, I'd have a short mid-wicket because he does this. And then Junior will say, oh, well, that's completely wrong. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't give my opinion. But, but Shane was a big one on, on me giving my opinion. And I was a big one on just making sure he was the one that gave his opinion. It's so interesting. And also a lesson in how you handle so many alphas in one room. Yeah, yeah. Well, you look at that footy show we're doing at the moment. John O'Brown, yeah. Nathan Buckley, <laughs> Kath Lachlan will be a bigger star than all of them. So there's some big personalities in there that want to get their point across um, and hence the necessity for teamwork. Yeah, that's right. Um, a question too, mate. What's the most unhelpful feedback you've received? Well, there's two parts. In, the modern, in my modern day, I'll give you a perfect example. Social media feedback is most unhelpful. So on <laughs> Saturday, it's just gone. I commentated Geelong versus Frio on Fox footy. And th- this is not a word of a lie. And I got six direct messages after the game. So it was a, it was a two-point game, cracking game of footy, best game of footy I've done all season. Uh, Frio won by a couple of points. I got three messages from Geelong fans. Your shit. You're hopeless. Can't believe how much you are one-sided against the Cats. So oh, it's, wow. it's people that are not happy that their team lost. So yeah. rather than kicking the cat, they kick the commentator off. <laughs> Three more Instagram messages. Wow, you live near Geelong. You're obviously so one-sided towards them. Can't believe how you didn't give any love to Frio after they won the game and didn't support them throughout the game. So it's like, right. So I was one-sided to Geelong. I was one-sided to Frio and every match of football, you get that because yeah. people are so invested in what they do. Um, it's weird, isn't it? It's weird social media. Oh. But 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 going back, at, I, I worked on Formula One car racing as a, as a 23, 24-year-old and we got the rights to the World Rally Championship. Okay, I'm taking you back a long way now. And I was pretty keen. I identified of all the jobs I'd done from pulling the camera cables to assistant director to graphics person to actual director, I had the chance to interview some people, some, some, some motorsport drivers, big name motorsport drivers that were on Formula One at the time. And when we bought the rally, I was working for Bernie Eccleston. Wow. And the boss said, I said, oh, I'd love to do the interviews with a rally driver. So they come in at the end of the stage, you know, whoever, they jump out of the car for a minute, you have a chat with them, they get back in the car, off they go. <laughs> so the boss, we were in England. So this is the late... 90s the boss said we'll give you a crack at it but your australian accent won't resonate with european viewers so you're gonna to have to do it in an english accent <laughs> which like you're, you're an actor i presume you can do accents i'm a 25 year old kid that's bumped around the world with a backpack so it was most unhelpful because it was shocking advice because the first rally stage we got to in the rally of sweden it's minus 29 I don't know much about rally and a chap called Colin McRae comes up and he's forward focus. Sadly passed away now. He died in a helicopter crash and he, and he arrived in the stage and I've never really interviewed anyone in this live situation before. Um, and they were putting it to tape so they could make the show as well. So uh, one, I'm trying to think about what I'm going to ask him. 
And two, I'm thinking, how am I going to do it in an English accent? <laughs> Which I couldn't do. So I asked him a stupid question with a half-assed Aussie South African Kiwi accent. Anyway, <laughs> the tape goes back and the box who said you need to do it in an English accent actually said to me, if we get the surfing and the World Surf Tour, you're our man. But to be honest, that was terrible. I don't think he even understood you. You're not getting any work in motorsport at this company doing interviews. So... He was the one that gave me advice to do it in a bloody English accent. Oh, my he God. Was the one, one interview in that told me I would never do it again. So that was pretty unhealthy. That is tough because you're nervous enough anyway. You yeah. know, it's suddenly doing accent work. Have you got accents? Have you got accents that you can slip into? Yeah, I could, but not in an interview. I mean, you need to. The whole thing about acting is you look at the script and you go, okay, how do I say each word in an English accent? You know, right. you practice it and you practice it. It's very difficult to improvise in an accent, you know. Well, I wasn't experienced enough to know any of that, so I just thought I'd give it a <laughs> Good on you, though, mate. Yeah, it was a disaster, though. It was a disaster, but it all worked out. Um, what is the failure you most cherish? Um, it's a, that's, a, that's actually a really good question. I do a, a little podcast where I interview sports people, Ad, and... Yes, big it, fan it, of it. Yeah, thank you. It's a great question because all their successes seem to come from failure, all of them. Mm. Um, I think the thing, the one thing that springs to mind um, before Formula One, again, when I was a young fella, I spent probably two or three years backpacking around the world and I loved it and I loved everything about it and I had no money and I went through all South America and North America and Europe and Asia, spent a lot of time in Africa. It was, it was, wow. it set me up as the person that I am. It, it really, yeah. It really did, and it taught me a lot of things that we don't necessarily learn in education these days about resilience and overcoming. It was it was the seminal point of my life, really, as a young fella. But I came back to Australia, and I'd done a business degree, a Bachelor of Business in Sports Management, and I got halfway through that degree and thought, this is not for me, but I should finish it. So I finished it and then went overseas for this extended period prior to working on the Formula One. So I came home and I was, I don't know, I was 21, 22, 20, no, probably 23, 23, 24. And I was at that, right, what am I going to do? What, what jobs am I going to apply for? Because my father had worked for one company his whole life, been very successful at what he did, but he was of that, that mentality, right? You get a job and you stick with that job and, and that's you. So I was applying for jobs that were in my field that I'd studied, like marketing manager for Basketball Victoria or... Um, advertising department for 10 pin bowl in Australia. And I did not want any of these jobs. Like that, they had <laughs> no interest in me. I wanted to be back overseas and, and, and tasting life. Mm. I, you know, I probably applied for 25 jobs. And I remember I, was, I moved back in with mum and dad, and every failure, every no, I would post up and I'd put it on the wall. I don't know why of my bedroom so it was like this wall of freaking failure <laughs> um, wow, wow but I, I was pretty lost at the time as to what i wanted to do but those i was applying for things i didn't want to do mm. and that those failures taught me at that young age don't be stuffing around with shit that you don't want to do have a crack at the stuff you do want to do and as a result the formula one job i fell into it and then it sort of set me on the path today so i often look back and think geez Imagine if I'd got the job at um, Lawn Bowls Australia as the, you know, marketing assistant, and I'm sure they're wonderful people and it'd be a great organisation, but I wonder if I'd got that job and got into the 
system, so to speak. Like you, you went out of the system, you know, you were working as a journalist and then you went way out of the system. You had, yeah, the, yeah. You had the nuts to do that. I, I look back and think if I'd got into the system, whether I would have had the courage to get out of the system, but because I wasn't bloody good enough to get in the system, it didn't matter. <laughs> So, so you started off as crew, then you kind of moved to doing interview spots. Is that how, was that the progression with your career? Yeah, it was. I, I started um, literally pulling camera cables around the track. I was a rigger. Um, so I'd go to every race around the world, you know, Monaco or Montreal or Sao Paulo in Brazil or Argentina or Germany, and we'd, we'd build a, a television production studio and have to rig it. So you'd take the camera cables all around the track Um and I loved it because I was outside and I was back on the road, mate. Like I yeah, wasn't yeah. marketing offices of Darts Victoria. I was <laughs> at Bar Frankelchamp or I was at Montreal. Or I was at the bloody Monaco Grand Prix reading the pits. So it was a bloody, it was like boys' own stuff. It really yeah, was. Yeah. And as a result, as I progressed through that, because it was such a, so much travel, a lot of guys left the job when they were having families. So opportunities arose very quickly to to after the first year to go into the TV production side and move through all the areas of that. And then they needed someone in a, in a, in a, in a moment to do some interviews and, and I did it and I loved it. And it was like, right, this is, this seems to be the path that I really enjoy the most. How he covered Formula One from 1997 to 99 before returning to Australia to work as an assistant director at the volleyball at the Sydney Olympics. But he's quick to point out that he wasn't working at the beach volleyball, which became a ratings juggernaut, but the more sober indoor variety. The glamour was there on the sand. Yeah. I, was, I was out at the <laughs> Olympic Park. But it was good because we only had to do two games a day and the game would finish at one o'clock in the hour, in the second game, especially if it was uh, um, uh, if they won the first two sets and the game finished early. And then you had this pass that really only allowed you to get into the volleyball. But if you flushed it quick enough at the oldest volunteer, I got to see Kathy Freeman I got to oh see my God! I got to see Thor. I got to see Tatiana Gregorieva, same night as Freeman, by just whipping in with my volleyball pass. But once you're in the stadium, Ad, this was a good thing. Once you're in the stadium, they didn't check the pass anymore. They just saw it was a media pass. So I watched Freeman three rows back on the finish line in oh the my area. God. Photographers with their big cameras, and I had me little, you know. Little yeah, it's it's dramatic. What it so was. The, Olympics was, the Olympics was brilliant, and through that, I got a job at Channel Seven, and then through Seven, I eventually moved to Ten, and that's when I sort of started doing full time reporting um, in the newsroom of all places. But that that was sort of the, gen- the genesis of it. But that was you know that was over a, a sort of five, six, seven, eight year period. And how did you make the jump from reporting to commentating? <sighs> and did you have to practice the commentating? You know, like I, I remember. Uh, Jared Whiteley, because I used to work with him and he used to practice, you know, used to watch games with the sound down. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that happened. Um, you being a sports fan, you might realise it was ahead of its time, which was a shame. Channel 10 was, remember when the digital channels came out and there was, you know, all, all the different digital spectrum That's channels. right, yes, yeah, yeah. Channel yes. 10 went with 1HD, which was a That's right. sports channel, which was ahead of its time, really. So all of a sudden we had all these sporting events and someone had to go and report on the Red Bull Air Race or the bloody, you know, the, the uh, rodeo or whatever it was. And then on 1HD, we got the Ironman, the Kellogg's Nutri-Grain Ironman, you know, like Leach. Yes. And all those, they were the guys in commentary. And then the boss said, righto, um, rather than report on this, why don't you have a crack commentating on it? And I was like, well, um, are we allowed to swear on this thing? Yes, please. <laughs> I was like, well, I wouldn't have a fucking clue how to do this. 
So the first thing I ever commentated was the Cool and Gatter goal. You know that? Oh that, yeah. Most up in Cool and Gatter. And a big fan of the movie too when, when yeah, it came out. Great yeah. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I sat down and Trevor Henley was the guy out in the water on the jet ski. And then I was meant to be co-commentating with Guy Leach, who is an Ironman legend. Yeah. Very good looking man and knows that he's a very good looking man. <laughs> we're, in this, we're in this demountable portable box on Cool and Gatta, like a like a hut on Cool and Gatta Beach. And two minutes before we're about to start the broadcast, and Leach is still not there. I'm thinking, well, I, I I figured out who the, the athletes were. That's all I knew. I knew nothing about it. Um, and Leachy comes in with a minute to go. He's just jumped out of the ocean. He's got his dick stickers on, which he commentated in. His hair slicked back. He's got muscles on his muscles. He's like, g'day, mate. I'm Guy Leach. I'm like, g'day, I'm Howie. He said, right, let's do this. So that was the first thing wow. that I ever commentated on. Um, I haven't gone back to look at it. It probably wasn't that flash. Um, <laughs> but... It, the advantage I had, and I've learned this, is it was not on Broadway. It was small. Yeah, it was yeah. low key. It was Iron Man, which was building at the stage. It was on a digital channel. There was no social media to look at to say, who the hell is this clown? So <laughs> that's sort of the way I got into it. And you talked about Jared. I'd spend a lot of time on the boundary at Triple M, just being the, that's the, right. the boundary reporter with, you know, the big stars and Gary and James and yeah. Brawley and... Wayne Carey in the box and I was just on the boundary and I did that for sort of five years, three games a weekend, a lot of football. And the boss at the time, Lee Simon, who was like the rock god. Yeah. He was like the the uh, god of rock, Lee. Yeah, Lee Simon. I remember uh, Lee Simon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was back in like, is it Eon FM days? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said to me, why don't you have a crack at calling the footy? Um, do a few rehearsals. So I went with our stats guy, a guy called Ash Tua, and we went to a Collingwood game at, um, it was probably Colonial or whatever it was called at that stage, and sat in the box and they recorded it and I commentated a half of football, um, which the boys have since played on the Friday night show I do. They found the CD. <laughs> fucking terrible. Like, it was so bad. But eventually... The more practice you do, like Jared said, you learn what's yeah. wrong, what's right, and how to get around your deficiencies and and get to a half acceptable level. But it's not like, mate, I wasn't. I, I presume Bruce McAvaney wasn't Bruce McAvaney at the start as well. But I, I I was real scratchy, real scratchy. Fascinating, that's fascinating. But you just got a number of chances to keep on improving, and then, um, and uh, then they went, okay, you're ready. Well, then ten got the cricket. That was the big. That's bash. right. Yeah, that's right. You got the big bash. Yeah, yeah. Ten got the cricket and. I, I knew more about cricket than any other sport. A bit like you, yeah. like cricket and army. Yeah. I love cricket, read about it, watched it as a kid. That's all I did was watch cricket and play cricket. So that was probably the the, the real opportunity to get stuck in a commentary and um, around a sport that you know, like the back of your hand rather than Iron Man, that you're trying to figure out what's going on. At least I knew what was going on. So then it was yeah. just like words around it. Yeah, and the setup with, with you and it could be Punter or Flam or you and Junior – um, and that's when the ratings were really big that, that first year that 10 got it. I remember because I was working at 10 at the time and they were just like kind of cock a hoop about it. Um, that was really great. You did a lot of innovations because it was like really the first time you, you would have the camera in the con box, you it know? Was. It yeah. was. Yeah. It was like that sort of goggle box approach. But what it's funny when I'm sure in your, in what you do as well, and you've, you've probably broken out of that because you've got so many skills, but you get, 
um, pigeonholed. I think in any, in any industry you do. So I was coming from a, a probably in most people's eyes that had seen me on telly, which wasn't that many, but doing the boundary at Channel 10, I was a footy guy. And then, well, what would this guy know about cricket? So it was a massive success. But the first year and a half, it was like, who the hell is this guy doing the cricket? Why is he doing the cricket? Why is he sitting next to Ricky Ponting? Like, I remember Rebecca Wilson, um, the late, great Rebecca Wilson, yeah. wrote an article comparing Channel 9's commentary to Channel 10's commentary because it was the first time 10 had done it, probably two years in. And she said, you know, Ricky Ponting's a star and, you know, Damien Fleming's funny and Gilly, everybody loves him and Mark War's got a dry sense of humour. And then she said, and there's that bloke, Mark Howard, that seems like he brought in the coffees on day one and he's got a nice... Yeah, he brought in the coffees on day one and he seemed like a nice fella, so they let him stay in the commentary box. Fucking hell. So, um, you, yeah, you you got you got to have a thick skin when you move outside of areas that people typically expect you not to be in. So... Yeah, it just I'm a bit of a I am a bit of a nothing about this, but you did have a front row seat to the total re- reinvention of Ricky Ponting, because yeah. people didn't know how smart he was and what a cricket brain he had, and um, I mean it makes sense, of course. You know, now you, you look back in his screen, you go, oh yeah, of course. Well, why didn't I think that? Yeah, but just to see him articulate things and see he, how he reads the game, I mean, it was extraordinary. It shows you how much cricket that you watched, you picked that up because now we think of Ricky as, you know, arguably the best commentator in the world. Yeah, I think he is the best commentator in the world. I think so. To be fair, I think he's a bloody genius. Um, but again, the boss Dave Barham, this is the guy that said, "Play your role and make these guys stars." He said, "We know Ricky Ponting as the guy with the helmet on that's tough as nails." And in the field as the captain was a bit grumpy, <laughs> amazingly talented, but always pretty surly with the media. Like not Steve War surly, but he was a tough, hard, oh, yeah. in-your-face, stereotypical Australian cricketer, wasn't he? And that's yeah. why we all loved him, but we didn't know him. And all of a sudden you spend time on the road with this guy, Ricky Ponting, and when he's sitting beside you in commentary, He's good enough to watch a dog race from Launceston while telling you why Chris Lynn is able to hit the ball inside out over cover. Now, that, that is a very talented individual. Uh, but oh, he's, great. he's also a man that loves his wife and has young children and is dedicated to his children and he's very loyal to his mates and he loves a beer. And Dave said to me, what we need to do and what you need to do is show the Australian public that this bloke loves betting on dogs, loves his family, loves a beer and loves a laugh. And if we can do that, if you can give him the platform to do that by bowling half volleys outside off stump and he will smash them through the covers. And I, I, I still remember when he sung the Mark War Barmy Army song in about halfway through the third season, um, about Junior taking bribes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mark Wall is an Aussie, he wears a baggy hat. When he saw the bookies cash, he said, I'm having that. he got a good memory. Shared it out with Warnie, they went and had some beers. <laughs> and when the OCB found out, they covered up for years. <laughs> Mark Wall is. That was the moment when I thought, wow, this is a bloke that was guarded and now he's singing Barney Army songs on national TV. Um, and Rick did all that by himself. We we just hopefully set him a platform to show the person that he was. You may have been there at that moment, which I wrote about in the book, where Flem says to Junior, um, I'd say that Damien Martin was the, the best uh, player through the offside in Australian history, and you were probably the best off the off your pads. 
it was a pause. Next ball. And Junior goes, Flem, I think you'll find I was, I was uh, pretty good on the offside as well. <laughs> that's, that's typical Junior. <laughs> that was an unbelievable period because, again, we went in the first year, not just me now, we went from a broadcast saying, who are these people? Why have they got cameras in the commentary box? Why are they wearing those clothes? Where's Richie, Bill, Tony? Exactly. Um, to slowly transition to be, again, at as an acceptable level as a broadcast. And then, you know, it became – I remember being – having a two days off. And I had a young family at this stage when the Big Bash really kicked off and I was doing a lot of games, which is fantastic. But there wasn't as many games. And I was with my wife, um, Erica, the lovely Erica, and our two young children with my in-laws at Pambilla Caravan Park. Erica would go up there for three weeks because we had young kids and she needed some support. And I was, Erica and I had had a night together at the um, Marimbula pub. <laughs> and we got the, I think we got the courtesy bus back. <laughs> big four at Pambula. And it would have been 10 o'clock at night. So it's January, it's summer in Australia. And to me, that was Richie, Bill, Tony, Chappelle, Max Walker, these large yeah, yeah. characters. And I was walking through the caravan park and every TV, whether it was on in the background or people were glued to it, was Channel 10's Big Bash. And there was Ricky wow. and there was Gilly and it was probably Andy Marr. And I was like, yeah. wow, this is, this is bigger than I expected it to ever be now. This has become a part of Australia's summer. It was that. a revolution. Yeah. I mean, because it had to turn around two decades, three decades of thinking. Yeah. And you for know? that first year and a half, people were not thinking. It's again, well, the Channel 10 hasn't done cricket. What the hell were these two? Yeah. So it was it was brutal early doors again. Yeah. Yeah. No, mate, I loved it. And yeah, you, as I said, it was a complete renaissance. And you released a whole lot of talent out there that we didn't know existed, you know, broadcasting talent. Yeah, and and Fox started it, and that's then, right. Yeah, and then it was ten, and now it's Fox again. Now, and I, I hadn't had the opportunity to work with Warney prior to that, um, and and he's there with Ricky as well. To be fair, well, yeah, I still catch myself. He was there with Ricky as well. I can't believe I'm saying, oh, mate, yeah, um, but he, him, and Michael Vaughan and Isha, and it's just so much variety and diversity in the commentary box now across cricket as a, as a thing and and at Fox that it's a pleasure to walk into that box and have female voices and English voices and sudden mm-hmm. voices. You know, you sit down next to Wazim Akram and, you know, oh, yeah. he, 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 you know he's, he's in the makeup room, you know, talking about how the Pakistanis used to listen to the 12th man on the bus on the way to the cricket. Really? Oh. And it's like, how, how cool is they like, call you say, you know, you're talking about was he a crew in the third person. It's just, yeah, it's just yeah. It's just a whole lot of fun. It's, uh, yeah, that that guy for me, and yeah, he's probably one of the coolest guys on earth. And um, and I'll never forget 99 World Cup, that first game against Pakistan where he just had the ball on a string and was just reversing it under very, under very overcast conditions. And I just thought, he's the most scary bowler I've ever seen, you know. Yeah. Uh, this will be interesting, mate, because uh, this question, because you, you would have heard yourself back many times. Um, which word or phrase do you most overuse? <laughs> it's one from uni. I don't know where it came from. I don't know. I don't know why. I call people guru. I don't know why. Yeah. I, I pe- call people. Everyone I meet, I'm like, "Hey, going guru? What's happening, guru?" As a result, now people call me guru. A lot of people I work with, but it's only because I use it a lot. Although, um, like, it's a nickname. I, I don't know where it originated. Hey, going guru? Just sort of rolls off the tongue. <laughs> However, I've been to India a couple of times. <laughs> The Commonwealth Games and for cricket, and 
you can't just drop gurus on normal gurus <laughs> in India because there are actual gurus in India. So if you're calling a non-guru a guru, the actual gurus are not happy with you using the term guru. So it goes in the back pocket there. <laughs> I love that, mate. Do you have a motto? Um, just say yes, I think. That, that has been my my work motto is just say yes. You know, we're talking about Iron Man mm. or riding or the boss would say, can you do this? I'd just say yes. Um, and from there, go and figure out how to do it. I've always thought that somebody knows, somebody must have commentated Iron Man before me, so go and have a chat with them or someone's done the reporting on the Red Bull era. So find out who that person is and go and figure out how they do it. So it certainly helped me. I, it's, I'm big on the kids with opportunities coming up to just say yes if something mm. comes up say yes and go and figure it out although i think probably in the last 18 months and and you must find this when you know when when you're doing a variety of things whether it's whether it's fox who are just bloody brilliant to work for or, or triple m or the podcast or if you keep just saying yes all of a sudden your life becomes very constricted and you start missing out on family time and stuff so yeah. As hard as it is to teach yourself to just say yes, what I've found the harder thing in the last 18 months is to just say no. Yeah. <laughs> because otherwise, you, like, I love my job, but it doesn't define me, hopefully. So I, mm. I started to try and say no a few times to be able to share the things with my family and my friends that I need to do. Mm. You, you must have got to, to that point at some stage when you had that many balls in the air that you actually have to say no at some point yeah and also but to your point you know you are turning the ship around if you've been training yourself to say yes for years that's right Suddenly, so I, I, for example you know for the last uh, 10 years i've done friday night footy i've done saturday footy then on fox and then sunday footy on triple m and i love it like it's fan you mate, you, you go to yeah. footy talk I about it. you're getting paid for it it's yeah when you lose that perspective it's time to quit the job but um, kids are getting a bit older now, 12 and 10, and, you know, mm. sport and stuff on weekends that you, you, you don't want to miss out. So this year for the first time, tried to clear the deck. It was a family decision. I talked about it with my wife, and we thought we'd try and clear the deck on Sunday. Um, so, mm. you know, we do Friday night on the on the radio in winter and then Saturday Arvo on the telly and then the show on Saturday night. Get home at 2 a.m. after Best on Ground on Sunday morning. But then the last three weeks, it's like, wow, this is what people do on Sunday. They yeah, a fire pit or they go out for lunch or they go to the pub or they spend time as a family just hanging out. It's like, wow, this is what real people do. So That's it's been great. It's been really good and, I, and it's reinforced to me how important that time is. But yeah. once summer comes, there ain't no Sundays. Once summer comes, it's just. <laughs> you know. Last question, mate. If you could go back five years, what advice would you give yourself? I like to think of myself as a positive person. In a way, when you first say that, I think, oh, it's a negative, so I'm going to change something that I'm not happy with. But like five years, mate, last five years, work's been fantastic. Mm. My family are flourishing. Um, so it's been a bloody fantastic five years. So um, it's, probably, <laughs> it's probably two very different things spring to mind. One, if you told me COVID was coming, I would have left Victoria without a doubt. There's no way I would have stayed in Victoria to go through what we did. Gotcha. Yeah. The way I saw it affect my family, my kids having to sit in this room I am now and not see their friends and do the struggle of homeschooling and the pressure that it placed on us as a family 
Um, mm. My wife really, no one enjoyed it, but my wife hated the lockdown. Um, mm. I had some freedoms because you got those, you know, I had to, I had to drive through to go to work a freaking police checkpoint and show them my papers wow. to go from country because I live in a little coastal town to go from yeah. country to city. It's like, and it just like just happened gradually, didn't it? But if I, yeah. if I when I say that to you now, I drove through a checkpoint and showed the police my papers to go <laughs> home and to come home. Yeah. Like, what happened to the world? Well, what yeah. happened to Victoria? Yeah. Um, where, yeah. Where are you based? I'm in Byron Bay, but I was in LA for the pandemic for most of it. You probably don't appreciate the the, the pall that it cast over the people of Melbourne and Victoria. So I would have got out. I would have got yeah. out. I would have yeah. gone lived somewhere else for that period. Um, and the other bit of advice I would give myself: um, we had two kids, and then it was time for me to get the snip. Right? Ah. So two very different pieces of advice now. So I went and got the snip. But because people associate you with football, I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get knocked out. So I was awake. Right. The first thing you never want to. You never want to be awake to smell your own flesh being cauterized, which is burnt. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> that's something you never want to do. And the second thing, being awake. Oh mate, the surgeon. There's a massive cats fan, and the cats were struggling in the ruck. And he was debating to me whether they should spend more time in the ruck with Nathan Barty. And I'm like, mate, oh. what are you doing? You, I don't want to talk about the footy. This is a, a procedure <laughs> that you need to get right. And, and mate, after it, I struggled to surf for eight months because it was really, really sore. So as well as leaving Victoria, if you're going to get the snip, get yourself knocked out. That's the advice I would give myself. <laughs> and I would suggest leave Victoria. Because, <laughs> yes, like, I thought, yeah, I thought that's where it was going. I thought, yes, yeah, so I went to Sydney for the snip. Ah, no, go to, a, go to a non-dominant uh, AFL states and no one has any idea that you might commentate football and tries to tell you what do you think about the Geelong forward ruck <laughs> playing with your nuts, to be fair. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to Out of the Question. We'd also like to thank all the guests that appear on the show. And if you have a minute, please subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app and leave us a rating. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me on Twitter at Adam Zwa. Until next time, thanks for joining us.